This is episode 223 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we're going to explore the anti-diet movement with the Food Psych podcast host and author of the anti-diet book, Christy Arison. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going to Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and emotional eating expert, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food method and founder of the Going to Beyond the Food Academy corporate executive turned health expert with my own journey with weight, body image, and food, it's now my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently right now and unconditionally. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hello, sisters. Stephanie Dozier here, your host, and I've got a treat for you. This is one of the most pleasant interview I ever done for the podcast, and I can guarantee that you're going to love it too. This woman speaks our truth here at the Beyond the Food Show, and I can't wait for you to hear her. If you've not yet heard her, the Food Psych Podcast is one of our, quote, competitor podcasts, right? It's the podcast about intuitive eating and it's the podcast about health at every size and it's a podcast that talks about almost the same thing as we do here so you may probably are familiar with Christy already but today we're going to talk specifically about her new book which I had the immense pleasure of reading prior to the book coming out in December and I read it in two and a half days and I mentioned it at the beginning of the interview that I really enjoy the reading because everything was backed up by science. Because often these books around intuitive eating and anti-diet are personal experience, which are as valuable. But for us in this movement trying to teach other, the fact that this information is all backed up by evidence makes it a lot easier for us to share the wealth with the world and help, quote, convince women to make the switch to intuitive eating. So I really enjoy the book. It's going to be one of our top three book at Beyond the Food. So we have Health at Every Size as number one, Anti-Diet from Christy Arison, and the Intuitive Eating book from Evelyn Triboli. So these should be the three books you now have in your home, on your nightstand, educating yourself about why you need to ditch diet culture. So before we get into the interview, I just wanted to bring to your awareness a new workshop that I'm doing, and it's the Self-Compassion Workshop. And inside of this workshop, I'm going to be teaching you how to use self-compassion to recover from diet culture. I've said it before on the last podcast is self-compassion is the antidote to diet culture. It is the way for you to heal from all the side effects of diet culture. But because we've been ingrained in diet culture for so long, we've lost touch of what self-compassion means. So I'm going to teach you that how to be self-compassionate with yourself, specifically from the angle of recovering from diet culture, leaving guilt, shame behind, stopping beating yourself up, feeling secure, safe, joyful, and at peace with food and your body. These workshops are part of our monthly free workshop that we do. It will be held on Sunday, January 26th and Monday, January the 27th. If you go to stephaniedozier.com slash seminar, you'll be able to sign up for one of the two dates and we'll be sending recording for those who can't attend live. On to our guest today, Christy Arison. For those of you who may not know Christy Arison, she's a registered dietitian, a professional writer. That's why her book is such an easy read. And she's also the host of the Food Site Podcast, the number one podcast in the world of intuitive eating and health. 
And her most recent book that released on December the 24th is called Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness, True Intuitive Eating. Today, we're going to talk about how Christie's journey led to her being able to write this book, why diet culture is the epidemic and not the obesity epidemic. The history of diet culture, why diet culture is morphing into the wellness diet, and a concept called the best buying interest versus detrimental buying. I call it the love and fear model. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. It's an honor to have you here today. You're one of the leader in the type of work that we do here at Going Beyond the Food. And your book has been amazing. I really enjoyed reading it. So first of all, I want to congratulate you for reading such a, a great book, for not reading, but writing such <laughs> a great book, and for doing this work for all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed the book too. Yeah, I'm a science person. Like I'm, I have a degree in science. So for me to be able to not just go by statement, but by science was really enjoyable. The geek in me came out. Yeah, it came out for me too in, in reporting the book. <laughs> it was like, ooh, I get to put in all these yes. references. I know, you have a pile the of them. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. A lot of so fun. I thought I would make this fun by starting the podcast in the same way you start your podcast. Oh, nice. So tell me about your relationship to food and how that lead you to write the book. Oh, such a good question. So yeah, my relationship with food growing up was pretty okay, I would say. I was an intuitive eater from the age of birth until 20, I think largely because I was always in a smaller body and so no one got up in my face about my weight or about the way I was eating and my family was luckily pretty flexible and open to different foods. So I had a lot of different options. There was nothing that was off limits really. I was able to, you know, tell them, tell my family when I was hungry and get my needs met. And we always had plenty of food. I had, you know, lots of economic privilege and food security as well. So I was really lucky to be an intuitive eater and just maintain that intuitive eating skill set that we're all born with until college. And then what happened when I was 20 was that I went away to Paris for my junior year abroad. I did a study abroad program and I went on a different birth control pill and gained a little bit of weight. And that really brought everything that I had been taught about weight growing up in diet culture into the fore, even though no one had ever commented on my weight. In fact, I was you know, sort of the thin one of my friends and one of my friend's moms, my best friend's mom even joked like I was a human garbage disposal because I would just eat everything and she would give me like these foods that she thought were quote unquote fattening and I would polish them off and people sort of laughed at my appetite relative to my size. So I was like very insulated, but you know, the minute I gained a little bit of weight, and I was still objectively in a small body. I still had all this thin privilege. You know, I still was fitting into clothes and airplane seats, you know, clothes in mainstream stores, didn't have to worry about airplane seats, didn't have to worry about theater seats, didn't have to worry about doctors telling me to lose weight. I just gained a little bit of weight and like all the stuff that I had always heard about food and weight and dieting kind of rushed into the fore. And so I started trying to lose weight quickly spiraled into some pretty disordered eating. I was cutting out more and more foods, cutting back more and more on what I was allowing myself to eat. I got into a restrict binge cycle and then it, and then it became a restrict binge over exercise cycle to try to compensate. And so I was really messed up about food. And interestingly, even though I had spent 20 years being pretty chill about food and not really having it be a thing, when I was in that disordered eating place, I started to think there's something really wrong with me. I'm addicted to bread. I'm addicted to carbs. I'm emotionally broken. If I allow myself to eat normally again or go back to how I was eating before, I'm going to gain endless amounts of weight. I need to be really rigid with myself. Like, you know, all these beliefs that were totally contrary to everything I had experienced up until that point just, you know, colonized my brain. And so I really struggled in my relationship with food for about a decade after that, you know, starting to get better and, and move toward recovery kind of towards the end of that decade when I 
started working well, first I, I started working at a food magazine, Gourmet, where people generally had positive relationships with food and I was surrounded by positive representations of like food and how people could relate to food and the meanings of food and culture. But then I went back to school to become a dietitian and started to research a book on emotional eating because I thought of myself as an emotional eater. And that was what led me to discover the book Intuitive Eating in my research and also discover some of the research showing that, you know, diets actually lead to binging, that emotional eating isn't really so much about the emotions as it is about the deprivation that drives people to turn to food for comfort. And so, you know, I was kind of started on my path out of disordered eating at that point, at least with intuitive eating, I started to click back into that for myself because it did make a lot of sense given how I had always eaten growing up. But the, you know, the fact that I was becoming a dietitian, starting to work in the field and see clients and counsel people on nutrition, I didn't quite bring intuitive eating and an anti-diet approach into my work right away. It definitely took a couple years of seeing people in like the traditional weight paradigm and being frustrated that people weren't losing weight or being concerned when people were like taking it to a degree that I was like, ooh, that reminds me of how I used to restrict and the things that I used to do. And, and that doesn't seem very good. You know, the people who were like my quote unquote star students or star clients, you know, kind of concerned me. And so then around 2013, I started my podcast, Food Psych, because I wanted to start delving deeper into people's relationships with food and had the journalism background and was actually working full time in nutrition policy. So nothing to do with my journalism background at that point, but I was kind of missing that creative outlet. And so when I started the podcast, it was really about people's relationships with food in general, but specifically like disordered eating and, you know, people feeling sort of out of control with food or feeling like they had weird issues with food. And I also started specializing in eating disorders around that time. I started getting training. I started going to conferences and continuing education on eating disorders and started seeing eating disorder clients in my practice and then quickly realized this field of disordered eating and eating disorders was something I really resonated with and that I wanted to work in. So that was really the the genesis of, you know, learning all about intuitive eating and health at every size and diet culture and all the stuff that I delve into in my book. So it was definitely kind of a winding path for me to get to where I am now. Everything happens for a reason, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Really does. And thank God for that, you know, book proposal that I never finished 10 years ago because I was that yeah. led me to where I am now. But I definitely was not meant to write that book because my ultimate conclusion from that book at the time when I was still kind of disordered was like, you just have to eat emotionally the quote unquote right way. <laughs> like yes. you know, by knowing your farmer and eating like slow food. And you know, it was just very it was still very caught up in the diet culture mindset. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I had 10 years to kind of work out those ideas. And for people that are currently struggling with their own relationship to food, your story really expressed that there is a meaning for everything that happens to Mm -hmm. us and we can find beauty and purpose in our own struggle. So true. Yeah. I think back to when I was in it, when I was going through it myself and it felt so hopeless and I felt like, you know, there wasn't going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And I actually look back at some old journals mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and one of the journals from, you know, probably 15 years ago when I was really struggling, I wrote in the journal, like, all I can think about is like food and psychology, but that's not like enough to build a career on. I want to do so much more. I want to, you know, I want to write about so many other things. Why am I so stuck on these topics? And then, you know, flash forward to now, it's like, oh, that's what I've, that's what I built my career on. And that actually has been incredibly fulfilling, even though, you know, if it hadn't been for the disordered eating, I could have ended up doing something completely different. And who knows what that would have been. I'm sure it would have been fulfilling, but you know, this life that I have now, I can't imagine anything different and I, I love it. So. Yeah, and it really brings all your background together. Like I had no idea that you were you had a background in journalism and it really gives you this ability to write this amazing book. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. It, was, it felt like coming home for sure to spend so much time writing. So for those who haven't read the book, which obviously I'll put the link to the book, highly recommend the book and it's going to become one of those Bible book for my audience. 
But the overarching statement that you make, or at least that I perceive in reading the book, is that you propose that we have a diet culture epidemic, not an obesity epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we are told and sold this lie that we're in a so-called obesity epidemic that is, you know, harming people, that being larger bodied is causing people to have poor health, that body, like larger body size is a disease in and of itself. All these messages that are so weight stigmatizing and that actually come out of a really interesting sort of political moment where, you know, as I argue in the book, like diet culture was trying to keep itself afloat. The diet industry was being criticized and being sort of chipped away at by people realizing diets don't work. All this research had sort of led to that conclusion. And in 1992, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. actually re- released a report saying that diets don't work and that, you know, 95, 95% of people regain all the weight that they lost within five years. And you know, that they're, that diets are basically futile. And so, you know, the diet industry kind of had to respond. And I think the way that it responded is through creating this notion of a so-called obesity epidemic through initially just looking at data that was showing people's weights were creeping up over time as, as well as people's heights. You know, the average height in the U.S. was also creeping up over time, likely because of, you know, improved access to food and medical care and stuff like that. But, you know, nobody was super concerned about the increase in weight or the increase in height for that matter. But then a particular scientist at the Centers for Disease Control, like, got really got to be in his bonnet about the weight stuff and was like, mm-hmm. it's really bad. There's a, you know, obesity is, is becoming a disease and it's spreading like wildfire. And look at these charts. And he actually took the data out of the charts and put it into these color-coded maps that I'm sure a lot of people have seen, you know, anytime the idea of a so-called obesity epidemic is brought out, people talk about these maps, like you can see it spreading across the country and over time, you know, from the 1980s until now, it's just grown and grown and grown. And initially that, that data was just, you know, really, it's really biased. It's really biased the way that it gets interpreted because it was, you know, an average of only a few pounds. We're talking a single digit number of pounds here that people's weights went up from the 80s to the late 90s. And then that was being treated as an epidemic that was being treated as a disease. And, you know, soon newspaper editors and journal, you know, scientific writers and all of these people started jumping on that term and that term itself spread like wildfire. And, you know, we get this making, this fabrication of an epidemic where one never really existed before and and where it really shouldn't exist. And it's to the benefit of the diet industry and the pharmaceutical industry who sell weight loss drugs. And actually the, the person, the researcher who created those maps was heavily influenced by, you know, the weight loss industry and the pharmaceutical industry was sort of in bed with those industries. Mm. And so... I think it's really important to kind of follow the money and follow the, you know, why is someone creating this this idea of an epidemic? But now we're in this place where because the idea of a so-called obesity epidemic is so taken as fact, right? This is 25 years after the development of this concept, you know, people now treat it as like a foregone conclusion. Of course, we have an obesity epidemic. Of course, we need to do something about it, you know? And that in and of itself is weight stigmatizing. There's research, in fact, showing that just framing larger body size as a quote-unquote obesity epidemic makes people have greater levels of weight stigma in experimental settings. And so, you know, we're creating this weight stigma that is leading to poor health outcomes, that is making people less healthy. And that is really a part of diet culture. You know, weight stigma is embedded in the fabric of our thinking about food and bodies. And that, that's what diet culture is, is the system of beliefs that stigmatizes larger bodies and lionizes smaller ones, you know, and that demonizes certain kinds of foods and elevates other kinds of foods. It's fat phobic and food phobic, the system of beliefs. And so, you know, we have now an increase in the amount of weight stigma also because people are thinking there's a so-called obesity epidemic and doctors are telling people to lose weight. Public health officials are telling people to lose weight. We have more people going on diets, more people trying to lose weight, which results in weight cycling. Up to 98% of the time, people who lose weight end up gaining it back within five years. 
And up to two-thirds of people end up regaining more weight than they lost over that period of time. And so, you know, people's weights end up creeping up over time, or at least they stay, you know, they bounce back and forth between lower and higher weights, sort of in the same, you know, losing and regaining the same amount of pounds. Either way, though, that's called weight cycling, which is, you know, cycling between different weights and and doing that repeatedly. And weight cycling is also an independent risk factor for people's health. It's also dangerous for health. Weight cycling also makes you more likely to have things like heart disease, diabetes, early mortality, some forms of cancer. And so it's really super problematic that, you know, we're, we're told that there's a so-called obesity epidemic and then that is creating in and of itself weight stigma, which puts people at risk for these chronic diseases and it's creating weight cycling, which also independently puts people at risk for these chronic diseases. And so really, you know, I argue that we don't have an obesity epidemic. We have a diet culture epidemic. The diet culture epidemic is doing far more harm than body size ever could. And if we could take the stigma off of weight and we could stop telling people that their weight is a problem, they would be far healthier and happier in the long run. And you did a very powerful work into that in your book, I have to say, from someone who knows the science very well. What you were able to demonstrate in your book is not only this statement, but actually that there is science behind it. And I think that's what will help this movement to move forward is really showing the evidence behind the damage that diet culture can do to each one of us, the individual stuck in this cycle. So great book. Now I want to talk about the evolution of diet culture because so currently we are seeing diet culture morphing into what you call the wellness diet. Mm -hmm. And that really in some way, what I see in my own practice is that people think, well, I'm not on a diet. Like, this is not me. I don't partake into diet culture, but really they do. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's the, you know, dieting disguised as wellness, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, what I call the wellness diet is really diet culture's sneaky modern manifestation that emerged in the 21st century that says, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle change. Or it's not a diet. It's just healthy eating. It's just, I'm just cutting out gluten for my health or I'm just, you know, intermittent fasting for my well-being. This has nothing to do with weight or yeah, PS weight loss is a side effect. Great. But you know, it's not about aesthetics and it's not about, you know, short-term quick fixes. It's about a lifestyle change that's going to promote health for, for long-term, right? And that is a direct response to the fact that diets came under such criticism in the early 1990s, you know, that all the science had amassed up until that point, showing that diets don't work. And, you know, people were, I mean, up until that point, diet culture was really pretty above board about its motivations. It was like, lose weight to be thin and happy, like lose weight to be, to look great, you know, lose weight, basically to fit this cultural ideal of how people were supposed to look the health arguments weren't so prominent. You know, there were definitely some health arguments floating around from the the early 1900s onward, for sure. And doctors started to get on board with, you know, interestingly, the, the fat phobic ideas about body size predated any health arguments for weight loss. And in fact, doctors in the late 1800s and before had argued that higher weight was actually protective and was good for health and that being too thin was a problem and that people should gain weight if they were too thin because they were at higher risk of of death and other diseases and stuff. And that, you know, weight gain was a natural part of aging and that we should just accept that and not be freaked out by it. But a lot of things happened, you know, there's a whole like really interesting complex history of diet culture that I go into in the first yes. chapter. And, and that, you know, basically there's this whole fever pitch of things that happened in the early to mid 1800s that sort of pushed the culture in a fat phobic direction. And that eventually brought doctors along with it because, you know, doctors are starting to get more and more demand for weight loss from their patients. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like a give the people what they want situation. You know, they eventually sort of caved and started doing weight loss. And then that's where, you know, once doctors were sort of bought into the diet culture beliefs, that's where we started to get health research that said, oh, yeah, higher weight is bad for body for people. Before that, there really wasn't any research to speak of saying that people needed to lose weight for their health. So 
you know, that is a really fascinating part of the history of diet culture too. But anyway, the, you know, the wellness diet really comes out of this belief that, you know, diets don't work. Diets have been shown to lead to weight regain, but it's now it's about health, right? This, the making of the so-called obesity epidemic really led to a, a feeling of sort of greater importance on like, okay, but, you know, we still, we know that if diets don't work, weight is still bad for people's health, quote unquote, right? Not that that's true, but that was the argument. And so, you know, what does it take for people to lose weight sustainably? It takes, quote unquote, lifestyle change, right? So that's where we started to get this argument for like, it's not about weight, it's about wellness, it's about you know, just taking care of yourself through cutting out particular foods or through calorie counting or through keto, excuse me, or intermittent fasting or, you know, whatever the case may be, right? Insert flavor of the month diet here. But it's, it's that sneaky shape-shifting form of diet culture that now doesn't say it's a diet, right? We even have diets like Noom that yes. literally calls itself the anti-diet, which, you know, as the author of a book called Anti-Diet, I cringe at that because it's horrifying. I googled it, you, right? Uh, I googled anti-diet <laughs> a couple of days ago in preparing and I'm like, numb? What the heck oh, is numb? Oh no. No, they're like, they're advertising they're like on that search. Jumping on your term. I can tell you that. Yep. It's incredibly frustrating. And it also just proves my point. You know, it yes. proves it's exactly what I'm talking about in my section on the wellness diet. Noom is exemplifying every aspect of the wellness diet. You know, it's it's t- saying it's not a diet. It's saying it's a lifestyle change. It's equating weight loss to health and moral virtue. It's demonizing some foods while elevating others. It's doing all the things that diet culture does just while saying it's not, right? While saying it's not a diet. And so that's really kind of the moment that we're in culturally, I think, is where diets have gone underground and and disguised themselves as wellness. But I think if you, you know, a lot of people who are early in their process of healing their relationship with food, I think can be really on board with the stuff that like you and I are teaching and saying, and then they get confused when they see something like Noom because they're like, well, is that, I don't know, because, you know, Stephanie said that you're not supposed to diet and it's saying it's an anti-diet or whatever, you know, they can get their head so twisted around because those things deliberately try to confuse us. They deliberately try to prey on people's lack of knowledge of like, you know, how insidious diet culture is. And so I'm hoping that, you know, in calling out the wellness diet and calling out the aspects of diet culture that are sort of universal, I can help people be savvier consumers of that kind of information so that when they see something like Noom come up in the search for anti-diet, instead of being like, ooh, what's this? Maybe this will actually help me. They can say, oh, wow, that's just another example of the wellness diet and how, how sneaky, how creepy is that, that they're doing that. Yeah. And it's, you, I think it, I don't know if it's in your bonus or in your book, but you have kind of a guideline or something that they can use to determine if it is a diet or not. Am I correct? Yeah. So that's in the bonus. So I ended up, I had an extra chapter in the book that ended up getting cut for space and it was like a little repetitive and we sort of felt like we had covered the stuff in the other chapters, but I, I ended up including it in this bonus because it's a really great standalone sort of article or chapter to like help you determine if something is a diet, you know? And so there's like 15, I think, examples of like diets that say they're not diets and how to tell if something is a diet. And yeah, I think I think that's a helpful resource for people to look at just to get some examples of like how diets show up in the world and how sneaky they are. But when I wrote the book, I didn't call out Noom by name. It existed then, but it wasn't like a trend and I didn't want to make it more of one by calling it out in the book. So, you know, that's not mentioned by name, but you can kind of see it in the examples of how diet culture shows up in the world, that it's, it's very much that. And of course, you know, as the years go on or even later this year, there's probably going to be new diet fads that we haven't heard of or anticipated yet, but they're still going to fall into that same pattern. So if you can start to recognize the pattern, you can become savvy to whatever manifestation of diet culture comes next. Yeah, and and it also happens in the field of intuitive eating, right? There mm-hmm. is, with Instagram, right, particularly, there's a lot of people claiming using intuitive eating and the outcome in a hidden way is weight loss, right? Yep. It becomes the eat when hungry and stop when full. And you can pretty much pick out those accounts, right? The entire slides of Instagram, it's all like athletic outfit and bras mm-hmm. and the wear and 
right? Totally. And like in the person. Yeah, exactly. If someone is like marketing intuitive eating by using their body, odds are that it is a diet in some way. Exactly. And and Weight Watcher, I just want to call this out last without telling that's what they are, but they did this big shift six months ago, right? From Weight Watcher to WW Wellness That Works, I think. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's just another example of wellness diet. So we have to educate ourselves, I guess the conclusion is, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We have to educate ourselves. We have to be on guard constantly for like the new forms of diet culture that are going to be so sneaky and insidious. And yeah, Weight Watchers, WW, it's like literally, I have a a passage in the book taken from a report that I got from like a diet industry insider, basically wrote this report for other members of the diet industry to be like, here are the trends, here are the things to watch, here's what you should do to like maximize your profits, basically other diet companies, like here's how to maximize your profits. And he literally says like, you know, Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig are like considered your grandmother's diet plan. Millennials aren't into that anymore. And any diet company that continues to, you know, focus on boomers, baby boomers, and do the same things that it has been doing to attract baby boomers is sure to wither and die because millennials are the next generation of consumers. So to attract millennials, you need to do clean eating, you need to do wellness, you need to do, you know, X, Y, and Z kind of naming the trends that millennials are into. And sure enough, that report came out in 2017 in, I think it was late 2018, early 2019, Weight Watchers announced its rebrand away from the term Weight Watchers to WW. And it also like cut out artificial flavors and colors from some of its products, which was another recommendation of that report. Like it's just so interesting to see how these changes and these shifts in big diet companies are responses to a shifting industry, a shifting consumer demand and like industry analysts recommendations based on that not at all because they want to help us with wellness you know it's not actually about true well-being it's about capitalizing on this wellness market and the millennial market that is more interested in wellness than in something called weight watchers you know because literally it has weight watching in the name it's it's obviously a diet so they're trying to go sneakier they're trying to go wellness diet style and mask their true intentions by calling it ww yeah and it, and it's a it's a business right i was in the corporate world for 15 years and as a matter of fact we i just did a podcast on january 1st on intuitive eating being called out the upcoming nutrition trend <laughs> Yeah. Although it's a good thing, in fact, of bringing intuitive eating to the mass market, it has this double edge where it's going to be co-opted by the diet and wellness industry. Yeah, Ugh, it's so sneaky. I feel like that's the sneakiest form of diet culture of all is mm-hmm. co-opting intuitive eating because intuitive eating is literally our birthright. It's how we're born knowing how to eat. I always say it's the default mode. It's like the anti-diet, you know, it's the antithesis of diet culture because it's just trusting your body and yourself rather than trusting outside sources and gurus telling you what to eat and how to, you know, how much and when and where and all that stuff. And so the fact that the diet industry and diet culture is co-opting intuitive eating is just like the biggest slap in the face to me and the biggest example of the wellness diet. It's the biggest example of the, the sneaky, insidious form of diet culture that's saying it's not a diet and now it's even saying it's intuitive eating. Mm. But, you know, the giveaway is that it's still promising weight loss, that there are still rules, you know, that it's still, they're still able to do it wrong, right? Like if you don't eat only when you're hungry and stop as soon as you're full, then you're doing it wrong. It's like, okay, that's not true intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned in your book, we do have the buying power, right? In this financial system that is the capitalism, we hold the power of buying, right? Mm -hmm. And you coach us, like you come at a place, you call it the best buying interests or Mm -hmm. detriment buying. Can you walk us through that on how you coach people through your book on how to make the best decision for their own health? Yeah. So the best interest buying and detriment buying language actually comes from Sonia Renee Taylor, who has a great book called The Body is Not an Apology and all her social media is The Body is Not an Apology and she's a website that's great, you know, kind of like an online magazine. So I'd encourage people to check out her work for sure. But, you know, she makes this point that in capitalism, there are things, you know, there's best interest buying, which is, you know, purchases that can improve your well-being, improve your happiness, you know, that help your your life in a positive way and that detriment buying is purchases that 
negatively impact your life and that harm your well-being. And, you know, so I argue that in diet culture, there are definitely lots of examples of detriment buying, right? Any diet, you know, buying into a diet program is an example of detriment buying because it's ultimately doing harm. You know, it's creating weight cycling. It's creating weight stigma or exacerbating weight stigma, thereby putting your health at greater risk. It's making you less healthy in the long run. It's putting you at risk of disordered eating, of course. But then there's also, you know, best interest buying, which is things that are supporting your well-being, supporting your overall, you know, mental, physical, and emotional health. And those things can, you know, sometimes it can be the same thing as actually a best interest purchase or a detriment purchase, depending on the mindset you're coming to it from. So in the book, I gave an example of like, I went back to school to become a dietitian and had very expensive student loan, you know, bills and I'm still paying for it and probably will be for, you know, years, if not decades to come. So, you know, it was, it was a, an investment for sure in this academic program to become a dietitian and get my master's. And I initially went into it for kind of diet culture reasons because I was still, thinking that I was going to quote unquote end the obesity epidemic, right? I still believed that that was a thing. I still, I didn't know the real research behind it or the real story behind the so-called obesity epidemic and how fake it was. And so I went back to school thinking I'm going to help end the obesity epidemic. And I'm also going to lose weight because I'll like unlock the secret to eating right through my dietetic studies and thereby, you know, this fight against food that I've been in for so long is going to end and my body is naturally, you know, quote unquote, naturally going to end up smaller because I'll just know the secrets, right? So those beliefs were definitely really harmful to me and kept me locked in disordered eating. And so I think that when I initially paid to enroll in school, it was a detriment purchase because I was, I was using that purchase to like keep me stuck or I was, that's the effect that it was having on me. But somewhere along the way, I did recover when I was in school and you know through intuitive eating and therapy and practice and time and support, I was able to get back to that intuitive relationship with food. And I started specializing in eating disorders as well. And so by the time I like fi did my final licensure exam for the registered dietitian license, I was, you know, that was a best interest purchase because now I was using my credentials to further other people's recovery, to support my own recovery, to help end weight stigma and diet culture and all the rest. So, you know, I think it's really important and helpful to kind of think about any purchase or really any decision you're making for your health and well-being to think about what the unintended consequences of that purchase or that decision might be and whether it's really having the effect that you intend or whether it actually is detrimental to your well-being in the long run, such as, you know, paying to go on any diet program or engaging in diet rules, even if you're not actively on the diet or paying for the program, if you're still following its rules and you're still practicing the behaviors that you learned on that diet, that's likely going to be a detrimental thing for your well-being. Yeah, it's all about our intention. Mm -hmm. And I express it in the using the filter of fear versus love. And I really love the way you express it. But it comes back to that same thing that I've been saying to the listener all along. Are you making that choice from a place of love or from a place of fear? And most choices from a place of fear will end up being a detriment buying because you're avoiding something that you're imagining or fear that you have. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to frame it too, because it's, you know, you're making it, making a choice from a place of fear when you're dieting because yes. the fear is, you know, poor health and like, but it's like this fear mongering about health. Like if I let gluten pass my lips, I'm going to die. Right. Or there's going to be something, you know, something terrible is going to happen. And, you know, this is barring any true wheat allergy, yes. of course, but you know, for people who don't have a diagnosed, legitimately diagnosed too, because I talk about like the false diagnoses in the book, but there's, you know, legitimate wheat allergies or gluten celiac disease, which is a sensitivity to gluten and like those things obviously take care of yourself and, you know, avoid the food that's causing you harm. But for the rest of us, you know, for the people who don't have those genuinely diagnosed issues, like gluten is not going to harm you. You know, dairy is not going to harm you if you don't have a dairy, al a true allergy. Even if you have lactose intolerance, I actually have that. It developed recently and I just take lactate or drink lactose-free milk and I'm able to have that, you know? So yeah, but it, you know, it's uh, the fear, I think, that something is going to harm you and that, 
you know, all these foods are bad for you, even if they're, even if you don't have any sort of reason to think that from a medical perspective, you know, that belief that um, you've just heard something bad about, you know, grains or whatever it might be is enough to make people make decisions that are ultimately so harmful to them because it is so disordered to avoid foods that you don't need to avoid for legitimate medical reasons. It curtails your nutritional variety, your flexibility with food. It ultimately curtails your life. It keeps you from being flexible and spontaneous and joyful and connecting with people over food. And yeah, if that's not detrimental to life, I don't know what is. It keeps us in a state of contraction. It keeps us in a space of limitation, in a space of stress. And we know that totally. stress is cause, at least, is a risk of many health conditions. The emotion right. of stress and making those choices in that place of fear just contributes to that. Totally. I want to go towards the end of the interview, but there's a part of your book that I really want to share with the audience here where we talk about feeling uncomfortable in our body. And we're talking mm -hmm. mainly about people who perceive their body as being larger than they should. And I hear that a lot in practice and with clients where, but I just need to lose weight because I don't feel comfortable in my body. And you have yeah. a beautiful way of addressing that in the book, if you don't mind sharing with the audience here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that's such an interesting question. And I think it comes down to sort of sussing out how much of your feeling of discomfort is really internalized weight stigma. And by internalized weight stigma, I mean, you know, these discriminatory negative beliefs about what larger body size means that we've inherited from diet culture. And, you know, to the extent that you've internalized those ideas and that you feel shame about your body size and feel bad for having a larger body, it actually does affect your physical comfort because the mind-body connection is so powerful. And, you know, that can look like if you're, say, having some knee pain, you know, there is the legitimate pain in your knee, right? That's not made up. That's, that's real. Maybe you're having knee pain, but then you have layers upon layers of meaning that you attribute to that. Like, oh, it's because of my size. My body size is wrong. If I could only lose weight, then my knees would be better. Maybe there are doctors telling you that very thing, you know, that you need to lose weight to help your knees. And if you're someone who has struggled in your relationship with food and where you know that dieting and attempts to lose weight have been harmful to you in the past, I think it can be really scary and upsetting to hear that you're supposed to lose weight, to hear someone recommend weight loss to you. And it can feel incredibly distressing. So that distress, that shame, that those feelings of powerlessness, those feelings of fear contribute to physical pain, right? They can worsen the physical pain that you're feeling. They can make you feel more fixated on it and more, you know, less capable of, of dealing with it. Versus if we lived in a culture, which I'm hoping that one day we do, and this is what all my work is geared toward, you know, if we lived in a culture where bodies of all sizes were respected and accepted and loved and not criticized or stigmatized, including the very largest bodies, mm -hmm. if we lived in a world where it was just, you know, understood as is really true that bodies come in all shapes and sizes and size diversity is real, then I think the pain that goes along with all of that self-stigma and self-blame would disappear. And then you would be left with just the, whatever the pain was in the first place. And this, this example, the knee pain, that is so much more manageable when you don't have all those other layers of pain placed on top of it. Because then you can look at things that really will help address the knee that don't have anything to do with weight loss. And in the book, I quote a colleague of mine, Reagan Chastain, who actually holds the Guinness World Record as the heaviest woman to ever run a marathon. And she's a health coach and an exercise coach. And she says that, you know, the, the pillars of any physical activity have to do with, you know, strength, flexibility, stamina, sports-specific technique, and that, you know, if you're having something like knee pain, there's a cure or a response to that that doesn't have anything to do with weight loss, but that has to do with maybe strengthening certain muscles so that your knee isn't taking as much of the brunt when you're moving maybe, you know, doing other physical therapy exercises or activities like stretching to take some of the pressure off your knee. 
Sometimes, you know, cortisone injections or medication or surgery can be an option. And all of these things, by the way, are things that people in smaller bodies get as evidence-based medicine all the time without having weight loss pushed on them for something like knee pain. And I myself have had a lot of different physical ailments that, you know, I'm someone who's always lived in a smaller body, but I've had knee pain. I've had pretty chronic knee pain in one knee for a long time. And, you know, it comes and goes and it gets better when I do physical therapy and the stretches and strengthening that I'm supposed to do for it. And I was lucky that I was, I was able to go to a physical therapist and get that information and get those, you know, self-help tools that I can use to help my knee feel better without ever having weight loss pushed on me. Because the problem is that, you know, if someone in a larger body has knee pain in the culture that we live in now, they usually get prescribed weight loss. And we know that weight loss actually puts the body at greater risk and puts the body under greater stress, which doesn't help with healing. You know, cortisol, like having extra cortisol Mm -hmm. running around in your system is is contrary to healing. And so, and, you know, the inflammation from that can cause more pain. And also people who are prescribed weight loss often end up exercising on the injured knee, right? They often end up, you know, doing activities that are going to worsen it and that, you know, someone who is not prescribed weight loss might not engage in. They might be able to rest and recuperate and recover, which is another thing that, you know, in this culture, smaller bodied people get recommended, right? It's like rest, ice, elevate, you know, put heat, like whatever, whatever the recommendation is for the injured body part, where, you know, people in smaller bodies are allowed to do that without, being told that we're being lazy or that there's something wrong with us for not exercising, right? Whereas people in larger bodies don't get that much needed healing time, that much needed recommendation to rest and to do things that are going to support their well-being and their recovery. So, you know, that's just one example. And there's many other examples. I talk about some other things in the book too that might be areas of physical discomfort that people attribute to being in a larger body or that come along with being in a larger body that, you know, might be sort of physical sensations that are happening, like chafing, for example, you know, having thighs rubbed together and the pain of that, which by the way, also as someone in a smaller body, my thighs rub together when I walk in shorts too. So, you know, have to kind of troubleshoot around that. But there really should be no stigma against these things. And there are lots of ways to care for ourselves through any physical discomfort we might face, no matter our body size, that have nothing to do with shrinking our bodies. Because remember, weight loss doesn't work long term. Up to 98% of people who lose weight regain it within five years. That weight cycling puts people's health at greater risk. Oftentimes people regain more weight than they lost as well. And so it's really just not a good idea to try to lose weight, even if it's for something like physical comfort. Even if you're told, you know, if you lose weight, it'll take pressure off your knee and your knee will get better. It's like, okay, well, that's all fine and good to say in a vacuum. The problem is that we don't have any known way for people to lose weight and keep it off long term. And in fact, that is more harmful to their health in the long run. So why don't we just take weight loss off the table, take that out of the equation and recognize that people of all body sizes have knee pain or have chafing or have whatever the case may be, right? Whatever physical discomfort or ailment you might be experiencing, I guarantee you thinner body people experience that too. And the stigma of attributing it to your weight is not helping you deal with the actual issue. And there are ways of dealing with the actual issue that have nothing to do with changing the size and shape of your body. So, you know, let's let's be compassionate toward people for whatever physical sensations and discomfort they're experiencing and help them, you know, process that and work through that in ways that have nothing to do with shaming them for the size and shape of their bodies. Yeah, and that's what we call a weight inclusive approach to health. Exactly. So I'm going to close the podcast with this quote. I'm pretty sure I took that in your book, but you say, if you're not accepting your body, diet culture still has a hold on you. Yes. So thank you very much for this interview. And I would highly recommend for every listener to go get your book. And I'll put the link in the show note for them to go get the bonus, because I think the bonus have as much value that the book has. You did some (laughs) great job there. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It's such a great pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. And you also have your podcasts, Mm -hmm. Foods Like Podcasts, because we're into the podcast listener. So I would highly recommend you listen to that as well. It's every week. Yep, every week. And it's wherever you get your, wherever you're listening to this, you can search for Food Psych and it'll be there. Thank you, Christy, for your time with us. Thank you, Stephanie. 
So there you have it, ladies. How did you find it? Isn't she such a sweet, soft voice to listen to? I love her. So I have a quick exercise for you. At the end of the podcast, or the end of the interview, we talked about feeling uncomfortable in your body. So I have three journaling questions for you. If you are someone who wants to join the anti-diet movement, who want to ditch diet culture and become an intuitive eater, but really struggling with how you sit in your body, ask yourself these three questions. What are those feelings of discomfort really about? Are certain things harder to do than others? And if so, which one? Instead of trying to shrink your body to help these harder things to do, what else could you do? These are the three questions I want you to continue to explore through journaling, through reflection on how you can help yourself with this feeling of discomfort in your body without needing to jump on the next diet or to go back and co-op diet culture. I hope you enjoy. If you did, I would truly appreciate if you could leave us a review. We have another great podcast coming up. And that title is When Intuitive Eating Doesn't Work. We're going to explore what could be missing from your approach so that intuitive eating works for you like it does for millions of other women's. I love you, sister, and I look forward to hang out with you again on the next episode.